Welcome to the Understanding Projects podcast. This is Dave Barrett. My discussion today is with Chris Pugh. I've known Chris for many years, and we first met during a systems integration for a financial services company. Chris has a wealth of business experience with a focus on capital markets and retail banking. His experience includes consulting, PMO lead, program director, project director, systems engineer, and others. The theme of our discussion is what Chris calls the anti-PM project manager, which tends to represent Chris's philosophy of project management, and I'm sure management in general. We talked about a range of topics, about the role of the project manager, but the overall theme was the need for the project manager to lead rather than just manage the project. Here is my discussion with Chris Pugh. So when we uh, when we talked before, Chris, um, just leading up to this uh, to this uh, you coming on the podcast, you mentioned the theme of the anti PM PM, which I thought was really interesting. And, and and by the way, just as a you know a little bit of background, you know I've worked together many years ago, probably going on twenty years ago, and I've always found that you have a a very you know shall I say interesting or unique way of looking at things. So that intrigued me in terms of the anti-PMPM. So anyways, I'll just I'll just turn it over to you and just say, so what do you mean by anti-PMPM? Uh, well, Dave, thank you first off for having me on your podcast. I think, uh, yeah, we've, we've known each other for quite a long time now, although it has been many years, you know, since we've, we've seen each other in the, in the flesh, so to speak. Um, Anti-PMPM, you know, I, I've, started to coin that phrase over the last, let's say, decade, because I found that in all the work that we do as project managers, you sometimes need to take a really big step back and and think about the broader picture of what is going on. And that often leads to things that are very against a project management nature. and I started to recognize this early on with, and we'll come on to, I'm sure, some of these themes later on, but the idea of influencing within an organization, the idea of understanding people's critical desire for delivery and success, um, other people's desire for blocking such success. And there's a lot of aspects around you know, your traditional project management frameworks, which are really great from a tooling perspective and methodology to follow and consistency and cadence for people to operate by. But the sort of anti-PM side of this is where it's really about getting truly under the covers and and understanding motivation, understanding how to move things in a direction that builds the right foundations and maybe things broader than the underlying scope and requirements of a particular project you're working on. Um, Oftentimes, when I first go into an organization, the, f- the first thing I do is look at org charts, and I hope that every project manager does that anyway. Who's who in the zoo is the most important thing you can try and understand. After that, it's how big of an influence do each of those people at various levels within the organization do they have? And that takes more time. That takes more uh, investigation. Uh, as part of that process. But then you start to learn about other motivations. And um, I've been very lucky in some of the projects I've done in my past. I spent quite a bit of time in Canadian banking, uh, technology delivery itself. And 
you, you look at things through different lenses and what we look for sometimes is not just the immediate delivery and benefit and you know that, that, um, that first uh, candidate for a platform or an application that has to be delivered, but you want to try and understand how to build real proper foundations within an organization so things have, have more le longevity. And I don't think as a project manage, manager or within the project management framework, we're, we're often, we're not really taught often enough about <clears throat> what that means to um, looking at scope, looking at requirements, challenging timelines. Um, and certainly I've got a number of stories on, on that theme that we can, we can talk about. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I agree with you on all that. And, and, um, you know, I've often expressed it as, and I, and I think I've, I think I've, uh, you know, said this on an earlier session, but I'll just repeat myself. Um, you know, there's almost two types of project managers and I've, I've worked with lots and lots of project managers and, and, um, you know, those that will keep meticulous, you know, schedules and notes and status reports and so on, and, and quite accurately tell you why you're late. And then there's those that will ensure you are not late, or they will work with you effectively to understand the trade-offs and come up with innovative solutions. And I, and is that kind of where you're going with the anti-PMPM? Is, is that focus on that leadership role, on that realizing that you're not just a passive observer to this process? You're not, you're not a scribe. You are a, a participant and, and should we say a key participant, you know, somebody who has a unique view that if you don't bring that to the table, you're not doing your job. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely on the right lines with, with that uh, statement. You know, for me, the, the goal I always try and have within every project, especially more recent ones, because, you know, we grow over time. So how I did things 20 years ago to, to how I do them today, obviously very different. Where I look to probably push more motivation, not just for myself to grow further, but to motivate teams of people is to really look to provide them with that um, space and that capability to challenge every element that they're being given for that delivery. And I think in leadership, it is, you know, you look for, and you have to have, as you said, all those critical methodology parts. And like you, I've got many good friends in, in project management who are amazing and meticulous and detailed um, to, to the point where, you know, it gets, you know, you know, it's very well covered and, and you almost feel guilty yourself by not taking as good a set of notes or, you know, forgetting to write down a particular risk that maybe you should have written down early on. But the real theme here is to try and broaden people's general minds and horizons with project management. I think the toolkits that we, we use ourselves, but also ask everyone else to use, you know, subject matter experts as an example, or operational people who are brought in and seconded into projects. You know, the first thing we, we do is we sort of go, okay, here's a methodology, right? Here's a 20 things we need you to do, and every week you're going to do this, and every other week you're going to do that. And they're, they're taken from a world where they, they have a very, very clear, delineated focus in life, but they're not actually told in, in what I consider better respects for the project and the delivery as a whole to think wider and broader. They're not challenged to say, well, if you do it this way today, is this the right way to do it tomorrow? Or can you think of 20 different ways? Um, giving people that voice and having that voice yourself, that's where it really starts. 
And I know I've got into oh, so, so many times of trouble with, you know, my senior leadership teams um, and, you know, executives or even regulators, I, I, could, I could attest to, where they're expecting me to have that view of, okay, it's, it's time, it's scope, it's, it's money, um, it's risk. And I'll pull them away from that conversation and, and try and motivate them to be much more real on the longer term benefits of what's going on. Um, and it's that case of, you know, when someone says stay in your lane, um, I, I challenge people, they shouldn't stay in their lane. And that's to me is the anti PM PM thing. Don't stay in your lane in this process because you'll learn so much more. Right. No, stay in, stay in your lane is one of the, I think it's a dangerous statement too. It, it's a dangerous concept. In, in so many things because it keeps you in that lane. It keeps your, your, your blinders on. And what you were just mentioning, it was reminded me of, I was just listening to a, a, a podcast this morning when I was doing some, some things this morning. And, um, and, and the, the person was talking, the host was talking about sort of, and I can't recall the, the exact wording that he used, but he's basically saying the tyranny of sort of, or the, the problem when you look at things just as an either or. That, well we can do this or we can do this and that, that's almost sometimes the the the, the process driven pm view as well we can either you know delay the project or increase the budget that's it choose one of these two and we present options as two options and oftentimes and this is the get out of your lane look at broader is there's another alternative there's a there's a third alternative or many 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 alternatives but you can only you you can you can only get those if you if you do what you're saying, which is to think broader, um, you know, um, uh, you know, consider other alternatives longer term. You know, work with your your stakeholders. You know, yeah. The other thing I like what you said is when you you said the first thing you come into an organization is you look at the org chart. You know, they're so true. I mean, it's it's the you know uh, organizations are made up of people. They're made up of people who are in job positions who report to each other who do have. Um, you know, who have wants and needs and desires and aspirations. And, and, and so trying to figure that out is key. You know, if you, if you just look at it, if you just look at a project as well, we're just doing a bunch of things and we're delivering stuff to an organization, that's it. You're missing some huge percentage of, of the, of, of, of the challenge. And that's, I, I think that's what I'm reading into when you say about the, the organization chart. Yeah, and I think that that is absolutely correct. It's it's also projects if they last three months, six months, shorter term things, you have more stability when it comes to people in general. Yeah. I mean, outside of a significant event like COVID or something else, right, which will challenge any organization down to its core. Generally, you could always believe that a three, six, nine month project, most of it's fairly stable, um, especially if you're not you know, anywhere near the year end, financial year end, right? Because that's that's when things can change occasionally. But when you've got multi-year programs or projects, that becomes more tricky because you do have evolution of the organization itself. And that starts to potentially impact decisions, not what you're doing today, but where you're going to have to make decisions down the road. Um, and I know I've run a couple of programs which were three years, three plus years. And most of my challenges were around the changing organization itself. Um, 
one of the critical challenges as well, and you know, calling out my my executives in this one uh, in in past projects, is they're also very cognizant of these changes in time, and sometimes their horizon isn't as long as the program itself. And by having a, a shorter term horizon at an executive level, they sometimes don't think or they miss out on it or they try and cut down that delivery as opposed to thinking of it in what it should be for the particular organization you're, you're trying to do this for. Um, and it's a, it's a critical balance. Uh, for me, I think part of this is my background was in development and then solutions architecture before getting into project management. And, and the, the area that I've always loved being in and, and my fellow um, architects hate me being there in, in the middle of it is the architecture and design piece because it is a, it's a people and a process and a technology all wrapped into one and you're trying to unravel, rebuild certain parts, retrain other parts and that's a longer conversation and I, and I don't believe most of the time Project managers are given the leeway to have enough of those conversations, not just at the beginning of a project, but throughout. Yeah. Um, some of my best sessions I've ever had in terms of setting the, the foundations has been even in the middle of a project where you think you really should be locked down in everything you're doing and now it's execution, and you suddenly come across a particular problem and you actually then push everyone into a room for three days because you realize what you need to do is, as to your point, explore every option. It's right. not binary. It's not this or that. It's look at it all, do the right assessment, and then everyone around the table should have be able to push the right option to the, to the correct people to make the final final call. Yeah, well, that, and that's one of the that's always one of the the, the uh, criticisms of of project management is that you do your planning, you lock and load, and then you just your, your ship is sailing in a certain direction. Doesn't matter if you're gonna you know get to your you're going in that direction, and that's one of the criticisms. And that's that's that I think that leadership aspect that you're you're saying is that there might be places for course correction, and it takes you know, and it, and it takes some boldness to, to do that. You know, you, it takes a, a little bit of, it takes some courage to say, well, well, time out three days in the room or however long it is, you know, the pressure's on and, and it's the easier, the, the path of least resistance would just be to say, well, let's just follow through the plan and we'll kind of, you know, deal with it at the end. But the, the leader will, will course correct if they believe in it, you know, and that's, that's that leadership part. Yeah, and, and I've been, I certainly, and I'm sure you have the same, but I can, I can certainly say that I've, I've been, I've been lucky and I don't want to say unlucky because that sounds negative, but constrained perhaps in, in, in different projects. So lucky in the fact that I've had sponsors who've been amazing partners in the process. And in fact, you know, one in recent times was very adamant about not following the traditional bank methodology about really introducing agile methodology into what was a large big bang program and you know that's the that's the type of thing that compliance and audit and everyone else looks at you and go now nah, you're crazy just go back to how we've always done it mm -hmm. um, but that's because understanding what is best for the customer whether it's internal or external um, it is 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 something that i've not seen all executives really get to grips with and again this is going to sound critical and, and i'm sure someone's going to uh, come back at me sometime after this uh, particular podcast but it's it's reality 
um, we have to think very closely at how delivery works on any given program and that it's sustainable after we leave. Like for me, the biggest, and I hope, again, I hope every project manager thinks this, is that you know, your job is to do yourself out of a job, right? Your job is to, in, in the right way. So come in, understand what needs to be done, get it done, make sure it's stable and get out, move to the next thing. Uh, and it's actually, I think it's for some people, um, I can see why they don't want to become project managers because that makes them nervous. The idea of a constant changing world in, in that way, I think can make some people nervous. But in the organization's view, um, the best partners I've had are the ones who've recognized early on at the executive level that we have to do something different and that we have to set certain foundations in place. And, and, and that to me, again, isn't a, isn't a project management conversation. It's more of a humanistic and business strategy conversation, which I think PMs should be having. They have to have those in yeah. my mind, not, not just with their executives, but with their team as well. Yeah, tough question, but you know, you mentioned before, you know, the 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 you know the traditional project management skills of you know scheduling and uh, you know a task definition and tracking and all that kind of stuff is is still there, but it's kind of I think it's kind of foundational kind of thing. But if you looked at your on an average project and an average month, how much are you focusing on each of those? Like out of your day. Do you Alec, like would you and I know this is this is a completely hypothetical, you know, almost a thought experiment, yeah. but would you say it's half and half, it's 25%, it's 10% that you're spending on traditional project management, the rest of the time you are out there talking to stakeholders, communicating, like doing that other stuff. Like what, mm. what do you think the split is? Is that I know it's an impossible question, but just gut feel. No, 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 it's a, it's a great question and I, I'm going to kind of give it give it to you in tears because as you progress in your career, it does change. So as a, you know, a junior project manager, you're spending most of your time, 75, 80, 85 percent, 90 on exactly that, mm -hmm. right? Because you're, you're either working on, on something small, which case you have to be dedicated, you're there to support the teams doing the implementation or you're part of a bigger program, in which case your, your more senior partners in the project management group are the ones who you know, are spending more of that time in, in the non-traditional project management um, tasks and activities. So you know, early on, I would say that the ratio is very high towards doing the tooling and the methodology processes and just that from a day to day. I can tell you from the last, I'm going to say, five years on the larger programs I've done, again, within Canadian capital markets, I would say I, I personally was spending in a day maybe 20%, maybe 15%, sometimes only 10 And that's, that's because of two things. I had great people in my teams. They, they, they were very effective project managers, project coordinators, administrators. Right, all of the supporting functions to help, you know, bring the, the the bigger reporting to play. And when you're working on these these projects that are, let's say, I don't know, 50 million Canadian dollars plus, right, over a two or three year period, you have to have a large team supporting all of that. Having a, um, you know, one of the best um, roles I started to try and always bring into my programs was a project financial officer, right? Someone who's just dedicated to working with finance on the project stuff. So 
all of that's great because through that seniority, as you move through the seniority, that then actually allows you to spend more time on the non-traditional stuff. And that's, to me, it should be, I say should because that sounds rather dictatorial, but I would hope that every project manager, if this is the career that they're taking, would think about how do I get to that place? You know, what's, what do I have to do in the next two to three to four years to get, you know, one, two or three projects done so I'm now moving up and then I have my own project coordinator to start with or, you know, two project coordinators and a finance and then maybe a project manager works for me. And over time, it's, it's like everything. You're trying to ultimately become the CEO of the, you know, the delivery. I mean, that and tongue in cheek, it's something that everyone, you know, there's a lot of motivational podcasts out there that talk about, you know, be the CEO of your own business or be the CEO of your own team or, or within a whether the construct of a, a large organization. And I think that's true in project management as well. You want to elevate through your career to be the, the CEO within the, the program. And that means you're going to spend much more time on the influencing components, on the digging under the surface components, you know, the, the ways to understand what are the big hurdles that are going to come at you, right? So yeah. that does, that's what I would say, it scales over time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and an important distinction, because someone new to project management that was watching this, I, you, it would be dangerous to have the idea that, oh, okay, the first day on the job, I'm going to be an anti-PMPM. I am going to go tell. I'm going to go to the the, the the president of the company and tell them what their strategy. You know, that whoa, whoa, that that would that would be an example of um, you know, no. In your early part, you are spending more time on traditional project management. Doesn't mean you can't you know look outside of that a little bit, but it it would be more. And I would say, kind of the companion to the stay in your lane is to be able to read the room. You know, if you're the new person in the company, they're just been there, you're, you're, you're reading the room and you're important not to come in and start, you know, uh, start, start speaking about things you don't know yet. You know, you, you want to be able to find those things out and be able to make a contribution, but, you know, understand the perception that will be, will be made if you come in and start to become too aggressive in your, in, in your, um, uh, uh, attempt at, uh, um, you know, leading your project and, and interacting with the business. So, you know, and it comes back to, you know, what you said a number of times is influence and understanding the way organizations work, the politics that's, that's flowing back and forth is that's ever present, but not visible. Uh, it's, it's understanding that allows you to get to where you are, you know, at this point. Yeah, and, and, and to that point, I, uh, again, I, I agree with you, and let's put that uh, big, big uh, caveat out in place that, yes, do not be the anti-PM day one of being a project manager. It, it is something you grow into, for sure. I think as part of growing into this process is, um, to your point, reading the room, it goes back to something, I don't know, you know, telling your kids, or I've heard other parents tell their kids this, right, at a young age is, you know, you have two ears, two eyes, one mouth, right? That's the ratio you should be watching, hearing, and saying. Um, and, and it's true in everything in this life. I think that being observational is very critical. You do want to um, learn things like what body language is. And we've, we've all had a torrid time in the last 18 months with, you know, this pandemic and all being on Zoom, we've lost a lot of that direct 
human interaction. We don't get to see what people's hands are doing or, you know, how they shift in a seat maybe, right? We we don't live in a blurry background like, you know, we have tonight in terms of, you know, what else is around us that could be either distracting or taking our attention away or maybe we just lost the crowd because they, they've just given up listening. But you can tell that in a room and you can tell that when you're face to face with someone. On, on this dreadful Zoom thing, it's, it's a very different uh, uh, aspect of, of working with individuals. And we've lost, I think, a lot of fidelity around, um, you know, how we see other people. But you're right. Uh, individuals should, who, who are starting their careers in project management do not try and be an anti-PM day one, for sure. Right. Um, but I do, I do encourage you to, to think about what this means long term on the journey because you will be surprised what you get to uncover. And it's, uh, and, and it's very motivating, I think. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's um, you know, it's absolutely true. And, and I'm just sort of, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, and, and I agree completely, being in a room, being in physical presence, you can see body language. It's much more rich environment. It is possible to do in, in Zoom, but it's, it's you got to work harder and, and that sort of thing. But you know, I'd often have, you know, people new saying, well, how do I figure out the politics in an organization? How do I, like, I like the two eyes, two ears, you know, you know, watch and listen, but what am I watching and what am I listening for? And, and just a few ideas, you know, if you're in a meeting, you're in a group meeting, the, you know, the boss is there, the reports are there, you're there, watch the way the interaction's happening. Watch what happens. Who's, is, is the manager, the boss, are they leading or are they collaborating? When somebody challenges him or her, does the manager respond, you know, kind of curiously or do they kind of respond back, you know, harshly? Like you're, you're, you're observing all that. And th those are, if you're attentive, those are clues. Those are your, your it's like you're, you're building your little fact book of, oh, okay, well, here's how decisions are made. Oh, the boss makes all the last decisions, or no, he or she looks for co consensus. So those are all clues mm -hmm. for you to navigate. And if you keep watching and watching, you're, you'll build that up in a short period of time. It's, it's not, sometimes it's obvious. You just got to look, you know, and listen. Yeah, and, and, I, and very, very true, because the, the thing that we, we lack often is that sensitivity. It's very easy to become very reactive in, in every situation we go through in life. And only over time do we start to learn that in a, in a room of people, or even if it's one-on-one, -on -one, that you are dealing with another person and therefore you want to try and understand their motivations. You want to understand their consistency of behavior. I mean, who hasn't got out of the wrong side of the bed one day and come into work just feeling foul but it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just a set of circumstances. And that behavior transcended into a series of decisions that became suddenly set in stone without yeah. anyone kind of, you know, doing the due diligence, right? And it, it is 100% right. You're, you're, you're very accurate in the fact that I, I do think in general, not just project managers, but Project managers should especially learn the skill is to be attentive to how people are responding and who has the power in the room. Um, is, is the power in the room? I mean, that can often happen as well, where if you're looking for decisions or just to get a nod that we're going in the right direction, sometimes you don't realize that the, the person who should be there isn't there. And that can, that can be a problem in itself. 
Right. But this fact-checking process to me is is all about um, being able to spend a little bit of time. And as a as a junior project manager, it's not easy to do. You certainly don't have enough hours in the day in general. But it it is something I would encourage anyone to to think about how they can be more observant in that space in that world. And you know, not not to sound crass, but go and watch a whole you know, set of CSI episodes or FBI, like any of those drama, TV police drama things, it's all about observation, yeah. right? It's all about picking up on signals and consistency. Um, and and as you go through the ranks, just to, sorry, just to add to this thought, the, you know, when you, when you, when you start going through the ranks of project management and you're able to build, you know, your team as, as your projects go, grow bigger, one of the best things you can do is is teach your you know coordinators or administrators who are in the room with you if you're presenting get them to be observing get them to just be notating reaction to certain key points of what you're doing because as a project manager you're often caught in that middle zone where you're presenting and you don't get to really see everyone's reaction as soon as you say a point so kind of like a you know a police interview where you have the two people in the room with the, the suspect, right? You know, one who's speaking, the other one observing. It, it's, it's, again, something I've tried to encourage within uh, my groups to say, okay, listen, if you're speaking, I'll watch. If I'm speaking, you watch, and then let's Just figure out notes. later who... Yeah. Compare notes. Uh, yeah. But this is all very, I think, all very critical for, for, for project managers to learn. No, I, I know, and I, I'm just... as. You know, I've worked for organizations, and, and that's the thing, the key thing about this is there's no one answer to this. Not all, every organization is, is a, it's a, you know, they're all unique. You know, I've worked for organizations where the product area was, you know, king or queen, and the mm -hmm. service areas were sort of at their beck and call more, the very little power, it was the product area. And then I've worked for other areas where the the service areas are ruling the the the, the running the, the place, and the product areas were basically subservient to them. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I know which one I kind of agree with more the former model than the latter. But if you're a, if you're working as a project manager in it, you work within the system you're in. You're not going to change it overnight or at all, <laughs> depending on where you are in the organization. Um, yeah. The other thing is, you know, we were talking about the whole, you know, the Zoom environment versus in person. You know, the one thing we are, one of the few, one of the things we're lacking in this online world is, is kind of like the coffee station. You know, like after the meeting, everybody files out. There's sort of that kind of, yeah, what'd you think? And, you know, and, you know, and, and there is this sort of crosstalk that's happening. And it just allows you to kind of see other points of view and assimilate. And it doesn't mean just because your buddy thinks something that's true or your coworker, mm -hmm. but you can start to triangulate opinion on things. To me, in the in, in the online, the virtual environment, we've lost that a little bit. Like we don't have that coffee station. We don't we don't we don't walk down halls together. And so I think you just have to try harder because of that. And it's also one of the you know I I, I do feel that you know, post pandemic, as we come out, you know, I do think there'll be a move back to the office for that, to at least mm -hmm. for, like the pure virtual companies that used to be in the office. I'm, I'm not sure about it. 
you know, maybe time will tell, but I do think that physical presence has a lot of value and, uh, and organizations may start to move back. And I know this, we're off topic a little bit, but it's just something I feel that we're going that like, that's, that's where we'll go once it's safe enough to do. Well, I think, I think as human beings, right, we're, we're naturally wanting to be around human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore there's that congregation need that has to happen regardless. And, you know, the, the, for me, the, I guess, interesting scientific part of watching this pandemic, putting aside all the tragedy that's happened, is watching how every country has one handled it, but where they are in that journey. So as an example, in England, they came out of it maybe about a month and a half ago, and it was very strange to start watching um, uh, sports games again with the crowds all in the stands, right? And no masks and you know, it's almost like back to normal. So you, you have a feeling that the office situation will go back to that soon. I mean, I think in most places, depending on which wave and how well vaccinated they are, right, it'll be anywhere within the next six to 12 months. Um, now, I, to me, think that's going to be a great thing. But I do also believe there probably should be more of a hybrid. I, in one aspect of this, there has been some benefit for certain types of people to work from home. Yep. I think there, there's some very good, clear ways. If you're a person who can be very focused in on doing work and you can sit there for two or three hours, if it's in your house, in the office, it shouldn't matter. But I do believe that everyone should have some time back in the office on a regular basis. And teams should, no matter how this ends up, everyone should come back to get together on a regular cadence because you're right, we miss the chatter. We miss the, you know, sipping on a coffee cup of coffee and you know talking about family life or other things and and during those conversations there's always these little snippets around what's happening in the organization itself right or true feelings about what's being done that you can then collect i mean it, it goes back to and, and i think both of us are, are young enough to remember this as we like to say is is you know when 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 people used to go outside to to smoke right and so you know, where was the best place to get all the information about what was going on in the company? Go outside and, and smoke. Now, I never did, um, but and, and not that I was critical in my hiring pro prospect, but I always enjoyed the fact that there was someone in my group who did smoke, right? Then <laughs> they, would be, they would be down there with, with everyone else because you want to understand everything that's going on. And it's not to try and be nosy, it's to try and de-risk. And I think this is where People need to really understand from, now I'm going back in purist project management, right, is de-risking everything we do is the number one job we, we can do because if you de-risk as much as possible, then you will have more surety on schedules, more surety on cost, more surety on quality, more surety on understanding the requirements, right? These are all the things, and I had it beaten into me by, by some very amazing people over the last five, six, seven years um, who had oversight on some of my larger programs, right? And and every every day almost, but certainly every week, they would come come and sit with me, and, and they would just kind of put their their hand in their head, and they go, "Chris, you didn't really think about how to, you know, de-risk this piece." And I'm like, "Okay, take me through what you thought I missed, um, and go go through that process." But I mentioned de-risking because it all came out of the fact that it was about how much time I was spending or not spending you know, getting the underlying, the undertone of what was going on. 
Um, so back to your point, yes, I do think we're, most people are going to go back to the office. And I think it's going to be a great thing. And I think it'll be done safely. And, and hopefully it means people can get back to being normal, for want of a better word. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I agree. There, there are some things that are um, that that the online environment is better for is, is is superior. For example, you and I are on different continents right now. We would not be talking so effectively without this medium. So this is uh, you know at, at one point I said the more this morning and you said this evening. So obviously we're in different time zones, but we there is no <laughs> coffee shop we can go to right now. You know, maybe hopefully some point in the future, yes, but we wouldn't be able to do this without this. So, so I think the challenge is finding that that hybrid solution, like you're saying, and it varies. I just get worried when I see companies not worried, but just it it makes me uh, ponder when I see companies coming out with edicts sort of of where there is no office anymore. We're we're 100 on, and I'm going. Wait a minute, you're a technology company. You have a lot of collaboration, innovation, teamwork. Um, you know, stakeholder, you got to understand, people need to understand how is that going to work in this completely mm. online environment? And, and people didn't evolve, we didn't, we didn't evolve to be virtual, you know, yeah, maybe that's a, a ways down the road in our evolution, but maybe not right now, you know, in terms of our ability to work as effectively in cyberspace. Yes, and I think, you know, we've been, I don't want to say fortunate, because I'm probably using the wrong term, but the the timing of this has been appropriate from a virtualization standpoint because our connections to the internet are better than they've ever been before they're more stable they're bigger pipes right the technologies like zoom or teams whatever else there is out there google meets and everything else they, they these technologies have matured very well and so it is it, it is good it's not the best by the way i could tell any by the way, any product manager at Zoom and whoever else, some ideas that would make more effective meetings for design and blueprinting and things like that. Um, but you know, just to challenge the point you made, uh, many, many years ago when there was a particular web browser called Netscape, um, that whole team was made up of programmers from all around the world. And so they somehow, way back when, managed to collaborate very effectively because Netscape was an amazing product at its time, you know, challenged every other browser that was out there. Um, but they somehow managed as a, as a collection, I think it was like two or 300 people around the world to maintain and build and continuously build a, a great product. Now, part of that could be to do with those individuals as personalities anyway, because we all have different personalities. And if you're the type of person who just likes to get on and do some work and then stop and then do some more work and it doesn't matter what time of day it is, perfect, right? And I think, you know, that was, that was able to happen. But I do believe that organizations have this opportunity to look very closely at, at two parts of this. One is the hybrid approach between people being in an office and working remote and making sure that people can be effective in both, um, but have, have the ability where working from home, you know, the one thing working from home does, which is the biggest positive in my mind, is takes away the commute time anyone has to get into an office. And when some people have even a half hour each, each way, that's an hour of their, their day gone, just commuting, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I think that, that's, that is one of the big benefits from, from work from home versus office. The other, the other piece, though, is that when you look at the methodologies people are doing, and 
plays to the conversation you were just starting on around time zones. Like I'm a big proponent where if people decide that the company, let's say, is is based in Toronto, but they want to work in Rome, Italy, then do it because in reality, if you've got the right mix and balance across the globe, instead of your company working or only having eight hours of the day or ten hours of the day, you have twenty-four hours in the day. Yeah, you're you're almost three times more effective than you were, and I would actually be very encouraging of organisations that have. Um, projects or processes they are enabled to do in that remote way, I'd encourage them to think very globally because people now would love to be able to do that in most cases. And that's so long as they're getting looked after, right? So long as their pay is correct and they're still paying the right taxes and all that other stuff. The reality is I think there's some really good opportunity and some companies are going to take very good advantage of this. They're going to realize, oh, we can do this now and, and, and we can move forward. Yeah, that's the puzzle to kind of kind of figure out. So, um, so yeah. when, when we've talked before, you you've described, and I think you described it a little bit today too about you know sort of that curiosity that you need to have, that willing to you know delve into areas that maybe you're not the expert in, but you're still um, willing to do so, and that's the step out of your lane sort of thing. How do you do? Like what? Mm-hmm. what how do you? Is that just something you have that you've got that, you know, some people are timid with that and they, they, they will, they, they're, they're fear, they're, they're, they're okay. Well, this person is the IT expert, whatever they say is true. You know, how do you break out of that or just you that that's able to do that? No, it's a, I, I, I do believe it's, and this comes to almost the theme of mentorship, right? Which is you, you have to give people safety um, to, to fail in, in anything. And what I have often tried to do, especially in, in the more latter years of, of project management, is with all of my teams to give them that safety net so that if they, if, they, if they were struggling with being able to do something before we started the project, usually it's to do with certain character traits. It's to do with being timid or fear, right? Fear of making a mistake. Uh, holds back organizations like no tomorrow, and it's one of the it's one of the things that I I get very passionate about, and and therefore what I try and do is give people an ability to fail if they are trying something new. Now they shouldn't repeat a mistake because then that's just silly, but in it, they should never feel that if they make a mistake they're going to be out of a job or not be able to participate. And unfortunately, some cultures within some companies I've worked with have created that that fear process. Um, now, what did I do as uh, you know in, in my more seasoned years around that? I would immediately create a sort of protective bubble around my teams, and that if I I would say go make a decision, and then someone make a decision, and it was wrong or it wasn't the right thing we should do, and then someone senior would come along and blow up, right? at that process and and so i would be the one who would step in and be the shield because that was the remit i gave my team is challenge everyone else and sometimes you have to you know upset the the apple cart sometimes to to get people to draw more passion about um you know uh, standing up for what they 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 want or what they look for and that's with the curiosity side for me um i do it because i think most people have great intentions, um, 
but sometimes they're given either poor direction or they haven't even challenged the people around them to ensure there's the right subject matter expertise or the right knowledge or the right time to gather knowledge on a particular subject to ensure that they, they've got everything accurate. And this comes back to de-risking in general. So creating time is super, super important in projects all the way through. I mean, even when you get to testing, you've done development and you're in the middle of testing, you could suddenly look at something with brand new you know, spectacles and you're looking at it going, wow, how did we miss that? Well, you probably right. missed it because we were running so fast at the end, end time that you were never given a chance to look at it. But right. at that stage, the number of times I've, I've heard someone not say anything, we're like, okay, I won't say anything, we'll just let it go, versus no, 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 you should say something because now's the time to deal with it. Um, it's a, it always amazes me. So you need to, to me, curiosity is two things, is, is, is helping people have time to be curious. And you know, as a junior project manager, you don't have time. Um, you don't have uh, anywhere near the amount of time you need to do it. This is, becomes a very extracurricular activity. And again, not to say that you know, I don't, didn't have a life or don't have a life, but I would spend time on weekends, right? I would spend a couple of hours here, there, or I'd spend a late night in the office and I would do more reading and understanding. Um, I would spend some extra time with people to get them to replay to me what you know, the current state was. How do they do things today? Um, and it's amazing just that the most basic element of human curiosity, if, if you say to someone, so tell me about this, or tell me about what you do, right? Or tell me about something, most people will tell you, right? And if you, again, two ears, two eyes, one mouth, if you listen and you let it go, you discover some really interesting things you would never have found out before. Now, hopefully it's not something which is devastating, but it could be something that either changes the path significantly for the better, or it stops a railroad crash of the process, whatever it may be. But I've always found the more curiosity and the more time you can give to curiosity, you're actually going through a process of de-risking your delivery. That really is the fundamental for me. And anyone can do yeah. it. It's not just me and my brash ways, as, <laughs> as people may say. Well, a couple of things that, that came to mind as you were talking about that is 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 um, is the the use of the word de-risking. I, I just want to talk to you a little bit more about that because, um, and just you know, um, are you talking about traditional risk management at that point? That at the start of the project we list our risks and and come up with mitigation strategies and so on or are you talking more of an in-flight thing where you're you know you're the, the the planes in the air and you're sort of walking around and seeing how things are going and and is this is this more execution based of okay let's just make sure that everything's running well and then and then you know um, uh, taking corrective actions at that point or are you talking more of a upfront sort of thing or is it all of the above i'm just i'm just curious i i like the term de-risking it's a it's a good term yeah no and, and i can't take any any praise for coming up with that i i'm trying to remember who who um i think it was a very good friend of mine who's in one of the management consulting groups 
on on uh, Bay Street, and uh, and they had they had kind of hammered it into my head, and it, it is all of the above. I mean, early on, obviously, when we start these programs or projects, you know, you set everyone around the table, and you're like, okay, so what could go wrong, and you know, how do we stop it from going wrong? Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you, the starting point there in especially mature large enterprises, and I do call out some of some of the. Uh, uh, larger Canadian banks uh, with their methodologies on this. But sometimes you start at the same point every time. And the, the, you know, the first 50 things listed were the same first 50 things listed in the last project and the last project and the last project. And in fact, are, are generalized risks, which aren't really project risks. Yes, you're going to call them as project risks, but they were enterprise risks. They were operational risks. They were things that had existed well before, you know, Right. The, the time you started this journey, and yeah. I, I recall one conversation with a with a particularly uh, amazing auditor within a within a group I worked with a number of years ago, and 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 this individual came to me, and we were halfway through this this program, and and he and he he says to me, he goes, look, I mean that there's this risk has been out here for a very long time, and we're coming up on the the anniversary of when the risk is going to be realized and and i remember looking at them and going but you understand this is not a this isn't my program risk like i wasn't the first person to introduce this risk this risk has existed and is acknowledged by hr right and has been there for five years i said so don't come crying to me that it's happening on my project go to hr where you know the issue is right and i was told that it would be taken care of now I, I, you know, all of those things, though, because this actually becomes more of the de-risking process. I had already done my due diligence on this particular risk with the enterprise group. I knew exactly where it was stuck in terms of formalizing a process or a guideline so that we could properly de-risk and have a true mitigation strategy for this. But it was it was stopped at the sea level. It was stopped, literally, it was stopped within the executive group, and no one was willing in the C suite to go through the process of ensuring that it was properly mitigated. Now, you know, this now transcends into stories which can be told off camera, but, you know, these, these things, ultimately, what you find out is some, sometimes the motivations of why something happens is so far removed from your control. And, that the only way to truly de-risk it is is to sometimes say we're going to live with it we're going to let it crash if, if if it crashes because of this it's going to crash right but de-risking is something we should all be trying to do and the only way you can in most situations i find you can de-risk especially in project management is to be curious and try and learn as much as you can about everything that's going on about everything about what you're delivering about the software vendor you may be using, about how long the operational team has been in place, right? There's so many elements in an organization that you, you know, I think it's a huge part of growth within a project manager that you can become very, very curious and you actually do yourself and everyone else a really good service, even though sometimes people do not like the mirror you hold up, up to their face, which that, that now, comes back to another point you said about sort of personality and timidness, right? I would never say to someone who, who is more cautious in their life um, or, you know, not as, a, as assertive, 
to go and be assertive day one. But I do believe these are all things you can learn by practice and having good mentorship. You know, and I've been, you know, lucky to have a number of mentors, you know, direct and indirect um, over the years where they either watch me do something in real time, because that's one really interesting way when you have a mentor walk with you and just be part of your day. Um, it's scary, but it's also amazing. So I encourage every project manager out there, find mentors, find mentors that are not just within your field of speciality, but go and find someone completely different from a different world to be a mentor so that they could look at look at you in a, an objective way and help you understand where your growth opportunities are, where maybe you should work on things that you didn't think you should work on, or just traits that you may have. Um, uh, but anyways, but those are the things that I think are really important. But being curious, being curious in general, I, I, I would say, please, every PM, do it whenever you can. Yeah, you learn I, so much. I like that being curious and, and you know, um, and, and asking, like, asking questions. And I think a lot of people, they, they perhaps don't want to, well, first of all, they, they, may, they, they might want to tend to defer too much to others of, you know, in, in certain roles and maybe don't want to seem like they don't know. But, you know, the questions can be quite powerful. Like, you know, just even if you were, let's say there was a certain process, there was a certain system that wasn't working the way you wanted it. You went to the IT analyst or program or whatever and said, well, why, why can't we have a report this way? Well, it's not programmed like that way. Well, why can't it be programmed that way? Well, it'd be really difficult. It would take a lot of time. Well, why can't we get the time? Well, it's a budget issue and it's a priority issue. How do we get that changed? Well, you'd have to talk to and then you'd say, okay, I'll go talk to them. And, you know, but through this 20 questions sort of thing, you can start to peel back the onion and eventually you get to the point of it's going to take two hours of time and that person needs it authorized by their boss. And you kind of, oh, okay, well, that's this. So, I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, but if you, if you are there to ask the questions, instead of it just being a wave of the hand and everybody's probably had a hand waved at them by, you know, mm. technical areas. And, oh no, it's real complicated. So really, well, tell me about it. I've, I've, got a, I've got a few minutes here. Let's, let's, but you, you've got to be willing to do that and keep asking questions. Well, it's the XT43 protocol. Oh, what's the <laughs> XT43 protocol? Oh, that's what it is. And, you know, it, 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 it almost disarms people because they're asking, hey, explain it to me. You know, you're not, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's not too many people in, in organizations that are, that are doing string theory or something like that. Most of it's pretty understandable, but if you kind of get people to play it out, if you do it in a nice way, you would, you'd said uh, a lot of people like to talk about what they do. If you can kind of get them to talk about what they do, yeah. you can then find solutions, you know, and that's that cure. That's that it's not curiosity leads to solutions in, in many cases. Mm. So I agree. It's a key, key attribute for, for good uh, PMs or anti-PMs. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so no, that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, uh, you know, good advice. So, um, uh, so um, what's your thought? I just, one, one thing I talk about, I think about a lot is, is what's your thought around PMs and knowledge of the underlying 
organization? Like, are you of the, the camp that, you know what, if you're in a finance organization, you need to have come up through, you know, you need a finance, a finance background. If you're in an IT, you need to have been a programmer in an IT shop. What's, what's your thought on that? Are you, are you on one side or the other or, or, or? Oh, such a, such a dangerous question. Um, I'll use my example um, of a, a, a large program I was being interviewed for a number of years ago. And I was asked exactly that. Um, the person who was basically the CEO of the group at the time says, well, why you? You have no subject matter expertise in this large transformative project that we're doing. Um, and my answer was, well, I don't think I need to be. And, and it kind of absolutely stumped the individual. I could see, and they're, they're a very uh, close acquaintance of mine. I, I've got a lot of respect for who they are and how they do things. I, I learned a lot from them around executive reporting and narrative and, and you know telling the story in the right way for different audiences. So there's a lot of things, again, as an indirect mentor, I, I got from this individual. But, after I got the job, but you know, in in the interview, he was, you know, so so. What do you mean you don't need to know? I said, listen, if 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 in the first two weeks I don't understand the terminologies and I don't understand the process and I don't understand all these things, then you can fire me. I said, but I'm pretty capable, I believe, in my own right, to spend all the time I need to to learn as as much at the executive level as probably all the other executives know, in order to talk properly about what this foundation was and what the change was. And we were, I was lucky in this one because it was right at the beginning of the journey. It wasn't coming in hot halfway through, which can often be a problem into itself. But my, my own personal view is um, you do have generalists and you have specialists. And I come from the generalist camp. In fact, I, I have often turned down projects because it was a repeat of one I had done previously. And people are like, are you crazy? Like you could do that in your sleep. And I go, that's probably the point though, is I don't, I don't want to from a growth perspective. I think you should challenge yourself in every way you can. But that's just me. I'm not saying that's, that's everyone should do that. I'm just saying part of growing in general is, is, is learning what you don't know and doing things you've never done before and making mistakes in general. Um, so for me, I, I'm a big fan of, of not knowing anything about almost what I'm going into because I'm confident I can learn it very quickly. And we live in an age where information is so available, right? Again, 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't quite as available. Certainly 30 years ago was not, you'd have to go to your local library or the university library or, you know, places where these tomes of knowledge had been sitting on the shelves for many, many years. Now it's, okay, Google, you know, I've got a few questions. Give me some general sense. Um, but I think you, most people can go through a process of, of iterating through knowledge, right? And if you are a curious individual and you're willing to put the effort in, because everything is about effort at the end of the day, it is you put the effort in early on. It's like, you know, like an airplane taking off, right? You've got to put the accelerator on at the beginning and then you stabilize it coming towards the top. Very early on in these, these projects, my, my goals are very simple. It's get to know the organization, get to know 
what the organization does, and then what is it they're actually trying to do with this particular project, right? Why are they doing it? What is it? And, and often it's about a change in the business process, right? right. Now, there are infrastructure projects and that's okay. And, and I know very good infrastructure project managers that do amazing jobs because it's a really siloed focused area sitting in technology and, and it's a must do situation. Like you have to upgrade windows, you have to upgrade servers, you have to upgrade networks. Like these, these are living things that, that keep everything connected. But in a business driven program, to me, it's a little bit different. It is you can come in and you gain a lot of information about what those baselines are. And what you suddenly find is the legacy of complexity, right? That over the years has been established. And I know, you know, one of one of our past programs um, showed an immense amount of complex legacy processes, which was challenged by you know, um, an, an integration with, with another group. And when you look at all those things, how do you unravel that? How do you, again, make it simpler, make it easier? And, and we're often challenged by time, right? Time or money is the constraint. And, and therefore, everyone says, oh, it's impossible to make it simple again, right? right. right. And the reality is it's, it's actually not. It's actually... The, the, the willingness when you go around and you talk to all of your critical stakeholders and then you talk, talk to the people working for your critical stakeholders, right? You suddenly realize that, you know, more often than not, it's, it, you ask the question, so why, why did you keep pressing this red button? And it's like, because the manual says I must press the red button at 10 in the morning and then again at 4 in the afternoon. Well, why do you do that? I don't know, but, you know, it's like an episode from Lost, right? If I don't I keep pressing just... the red button, then... <laughs> I still have my good references in the back of my head. But if you, if you don't keep doing it, then, then the world explodes, right? And again, curiosity, but then looking at a process saying, okay, how do we make this easier? Like, what are we trying to do? And you don't always have to like throw a ton of technology at things. And I think this is sometimes the big disconnect between a technology team and an operations team and then the business, right? You kind of have those trifecta and then you've got you know, all your great supporting costs of compliance and audit and legal and everyone else in between. But those three often get very disconnected early on if, 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 if never connected in a, in a project um, because of the, the lack of kind of overall foresight in, in the leadership and the lack of curiosity of impact. So if I'm talking to, if I'm pressing a button on the screen here, well, what is it really doing? It turns out it's just sending an email over here and this person's then typing the stuff back in to another screen, right? And sometimes the first person has no idea that's happening because again, right. over time, this legacy of complexity has been built up. So um, I actually love going into projects, not knowing anything about it. Yeah. I actually enjoy that because I feel it gives me a more objective ability at looking at what we're trying to do. I get to look at an organization without any significant burden of history or influence of um, other individuals. I get to take my own snapshot of that. I get to challenge myself to learn about a new business, which I think is incredibly fascinating. Um, and, and, and then from there, understanding what the goals are to, to get to completion. 
And what you find, what you find often is that people are just, I don't want to say jaded, sometimes they are, but they, they feel trapped because of this burden of complex, legacy complexity that's built up, right? And it's about trying to get away from that. Right, if they've, if they've heard too many times, this is the way we do things, like stop asking, because they, they, they get that, that burden that, that you're saying, they'll, they'll just become kind of, um, you know, they'll stop trying and, and that's dangerous. I love your example of the press the button and it goes somewhere and then it's an, an email sent, which maybe goes to another person and then they press another button. And that's just this weird conglomeration of things that if somebody just comes and untangles it. Um, the other thing is you mentioned the, um, you mentioned that they are shared uh, project their program that we were on and uh i remember i still remember this was many like basically going on 20 years ago and and you know uh, the, the the program was was in it needed help like it was it was it was languishing to some degree and i remember you were perhaps coming on board to 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 help us out and i, and I remember you and i talking in a in a meeting room you know sort of like Get to know each other, you know, sort of thing, and and uh, and um, you know, it quickly we moved away from the you know, well, tell me about your qualifications and whatever, and it became kind of a a, a conversation not unlike this, after a few mm -hmm. minutes where we we're just talking about how things should work and your 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 philosophy of projects and things like that, and it became immediately clear to me is that you were the person who would ask those questions, who would be curious and would help us move forward. So uh, interesting is, is that that was that was 20 years ago, basically, or, or so um, uh, a little bit less, but uh, but it was it was that exact quality that was needed on that on that program, because I, you know, that was that's one that had, like you mentioned, a lot of legacy, a lot of a lot of yes parts that were fitted together sometimes in ill fitting and somebody had to come in and just say hey what are, why is this working this way you know what tell, tell me tell me what the connections are and maybe we can figure out a better way to do it you know and that's that's one of the things that a pm can do yes and i mean for that specific one it was um you know, very much a, a clash of cultures. And, the, you know, a similar example I'll give you is I was working um, at IBM many years ago when um, they ended up uh, buying Lotus Development, which did Lotus Notes and, you know, one, two, three, but Lotus Notes and Domino were the major prod products that IBM were buying in because they, they, you know, very good in the database space, but they were finding their customer base had moved away from, you know, that much more traditional layer into knowledge sharing, right, which is what the Lotus suite gave them. And um, there was this great article about how you had on one side of the room, the blue suits, and on the other side, the chinos and denim shirt crowd, right, from Lotus. And, and you know, they would try and get on the dance floor together. And it was embarrassing and awkward. And, you know, like a like a prom date, it was just like, always going to be messy at some point in time. But I say that in, in, in sort of great love and respect, because you have to recognize at the very beginning that when you're trying to, to bring two very diverse and complex organizations together, it's not just the technology. It's not just the paper that gets pushed between five people. It's the inevitable um, differences in attitude and culture from each of those organizations that will will create friction and that 
at the offset, you've got to try and figure out, well, what do I do with this? Can I, can I broker it? Do I just slam it together and see what falls out, right? But it, it, it's often overlooked and it's a, um, I think businesses, you know, again, and as a project manager, I think you should be cognizant that there are all these pieces. You shouldn't just think, oh, the business has told us to do this and so that's what we should do. Yes, you're going to do it, but you want to understand how, you know, what was the, the rationalization to start that journey. doesn't right. mean it's wrong. You just, you should try and learn what it means. Because um, otherwise, you're just another person hitting a red button, right? right? It's like, I will do it because someone's told me to do it. And I, I guess and, we and I, the button. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, no, you're right. A, a, a great example is reporting. Right? I mean, we talk about reporting in businesses. The number of times, and I've seen this happen in two large, two large financial institutes on Bay Street over the years, where there was some large implementations happening. And we looked at, okay, what reporting is going on in the current baseline world? What, what's happening? Who's getting what report where? And we spent three weeks and we go, we don't know. And, and so we're sitting with our business guy one day, and and, uh, and he goes, well, what's your recommendation? We said, just turn it off. And he goes, but what happens if someone's using it? I go, we'll find out. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, that takes some time. Yeah, yeah. Just turn it off, right? But we didn't have, we, we had exhausted, actually, that's an example where we exhausted all these other ways we could do it. And every yeah. other way was going to take three years, an army of two million people, right? And we're like, okay, we don't think anyone is using it, or we right. think maybe one person is just kill it. But you have to have tenacity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You have to have tenacity. Yeah. I, I, I liked your, and I agree, there, there's that, that whole, if, you know, it, it, we're talking about certain characteristics, you know, we're talking throughout this, we're talking about curiosity, um, you know, being able to work with people, uh, de-risking that ability to sniff out risk, you know, and um, uh, and then the one that you just came to mind is is almost this, you know, almost intuitive cost benefiting in in your head, you know, because as you're going through that, you say, yeah, we could spend three years, we could spend you know half a million dollars to analyze the impact, or we could just turn it off and well, we'll wait half an hour and see what happens, you know, like that. There's now it could have been something bad happened. You don't know, mm -hmm. but it's that ability to assess costs and benefits of varying alternatives. Um, the other thing I, I like your 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 analogy of the um, of the 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 the, uh, the prom dance and so on of the you know two cultures or different people in an organization and it brought to mind that there's a there's an old expression in in politics about uh, you know political campaigns. It's about the economy, stupid. Uh, is mm -hmm. something and it's, it's about the economy. It's the economy, projects, it's about the people. You know, it is, you know, we have technology, we have, we have, we have budgets, we have, uh, you know, systems, processes, but it all comes down to there are people working together, you know, and they don't always work together well. And if you can figure that out, the rest starts to, to, you know, the, the, the rest all, all, all rest on, on top of that, that sort of understanding and, and figuring out how to get people to work together, communicate, like, that's what it's all about. So your, your, your dance analogy, I think was, uh, was, was spot on on that one. 
Yeah, and I think you know, for me, the these things about keeping things simple, right, is ultimately again just a natural ethos. You shouldn't be scared about the complexity you see in front of you. Um, as a project manager, you'll go in, uh, and uh, again, I've spent many hours speaking with very good friends of mine who are also senior project managers or project directors, and we always come back to the same thing, which is, you know, we're often given these large transformation programs or smaller ones because over time you've, you've had this buildup of, of change which over time like a you know painting the same uh, wall you know over the years and then you scratch it off and you find 20 layers of paint you have that with technology and, and, and process um, and I keep reminding people that to me this this is just really about people and technology, people and systems, and that in between those two things, we create operational process. Right? We are compensating controls. Like it, it, Once you give people that leeway to go, oh, now it's not to say that the business processes aren't complex and that they're many intertwined and you have to think about lots of different pieces, but when you start looking at what we do, most of the innate issues you think you have often are because of your basic people and process and then the technology. And anyone who says to me, oh, I can solve this issue with technology is, is lying. You can't just solve it with technology. Technology is just a tool, right? And in the wrong hands, and with someone who hasn't read the manual, right, it's a dangerous tool. It can be even worse. I try and keep everyone very level-headed when we start these programs by saying, look, it may look daunting to you right now. It may look, you know, and, and when you have a budget number, as I said, which is anywhere in the, I don't know, sort of seven, eight, sometimes nine-figure level, right? And people are like, what do I do with that? And you're like, we're going to break it down. We're going to realize that. We're trying to build foundations, and to do that, you have to break it right down and be very clear and, and keep it very simple. That's the, the critical thing. No, I agree. Keep it simple is, is one of the best, you know, the best statements that have been, have been made. And, you know, there's various quotes and so on you can find on the Internet. I think, uh, you know, Einstein said something about to explain. So if you can explain something simple is the is, is very difficult or is, is very is very good to do. Uh, and so if you can constantly be striving for simplicity, it, both in interactions and in problem solving, as well as in product, like there's a whole product design, you know, uh, tangent we could go off on that you know apple has mm. made a lot of money doing of making their products simple and usable but but if you can apply that back to your interactions your decision making your you know yes we have a lot of you know there's a whole lot of variables coming in but let's boil them down to the big three and let's let's make a decision based on the key things and if you can simplify things to that degree um you, you can get a lot done is it just not if you if you see the world as as just endlessly complex you become paralyzed you you don't know what to do you're constantly trying to gain more variables and gain more information and it's an endless it's an endless task it's a you, you can't ever finish but if you can look for if you can look for the underlying essence to try to simplify it to that degree mm -hmm. it, it makes for really effective you know 
decision making and people can get behind it and 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 so on so i think that's a that's a it's a key way if you start from there it's not to ignore complexity yes you know the there there is some complexity systems and and organizations have their complexities but if you're constantly trying to look and see what the underlying purpose is that's where the simplification comes into into play mm -hmm. So. And I think, you know, one of the things you were saying earlier about sort of the cost benefit analysis, again, a project manager, to, in my mind, over time builds out these experiences so that they can go into the next one. And whether it's a generalist like myself who will, you know, pick and choose from all the different things I've done, or a specialist who's done it so many times, they know verbatim, like what the cost benefit models really look like for that vertical that they're working in. I think both are totally fine and that, that really the challenge is for, for project managers to recognize that's a skill they have to develop and a set of experience they have to be able to model in their head and keep in the background because we're always asked, you know, how big is the breadbasket, right? Or how, you know, what do you think it would be if we did this, this and this? And the goal is to provide some level of educated guessing. That's that's one side of it. But the follow-up is always about, well, I think it's sort of this big and this long and this wide, but here's the next five things, to your point, we have to do to get to the next level of detail. Um, and I and I do think that when you start simplifying the, the, the view of the world in that way, you can actually get people to converse better. I think when you said daunting is a great word. Yeah, I've, I've been with teams, many teams, where they just feel exasperated by what looks to be something very, very large and they can't deconstruct. And for me, running large programs is all about the ability not just to deconstruct it into the different pieces and run many things potentially in parallel, but know always know how they are interconnected and all, always try and know how they're really being run from the bottom up. Now, I, I've had enough good discussions with, with my, my teams over the years where um, there's a difference between being seen to be micromanaging, right, which no one likes to be micromanaged, versus, versus, versus someone caring about the holistic package being delivered with the right bow and the right paper and everything else. And it's a challenge, right? Because I, I know, again, I'm sure if any of my, my past colleagues are watch, end up watching this, they'll be like, oh, yes, Chris, he's, a, he's always micromanaging. And that's, but they will also then say, I'm not. What they'll say is that when you're running these large programs, you have to know every single piece going on and that you've got to make sure everything ties in at every level to be true. And that's where my sort of architecture background my design background comes in and not every project manager has that not every project manager should have that um, but the ability to think about things at scale and and be able to give sensible answers to questions but the two most powerful answers anyone can give and they're the two answers that i think most people almost die in fear with the idea of having to say these words is either say no, right? Don't always say yes, say no. If, if you think it, the answer is no, say no. That's it. Like you'll get far more respect over time. You should never fear saying no. And the other one you should never fear is saying, I don't know, right? Because yes. we, all, we, all, we all try and pretend we know, right? Um, but the reality is we don't always know. Most of us don't know most things. 
And it's not, I think it's great when I hear people say, I don't know. And then we go, okay, well, let's now figure out how we can find out, right? Because that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know what just comes to mind as you're, as you're talking? Like a few times you've said, you know, like, I don't know, or just, just now you said, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say no. Um, sometimes you have, you need to say things that you, you mentioned, you know, well, it could have, could have got me, this maybe could get me fired, but, and, and uh, it, it really brings to the mind that, and, and again, don't read this in as do things that could get you fired. I don't mean that. But if you are constantly afraid of being fired or losing your job, you're not going to be effective as a project manager. And in fact, you will probably be more likely to lose your job if, if you are worried about it. So, but if you put that aside and say, look, I'm not going to, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to worry about that. You'll do a big, so the, the net effect is you will be more effective and therefore become more valued by your organization. So it's a, it's a bit of a paradox there, but I've been the same thing of it within, within my career at various times, I've gone, you know what, I'm, I'm here to do the right thing and to, to say what needs to be said. And if they, if they don't want to hear it, then that's, then I'll work for someone else. If, now, again, there's all issues of, you know, of, of economics and can you afford you, I'm not trying to underplay the need for people for to have a job. And again, early in your career, you're going to need to, you know, listen and watch more than you speak. But, you know, there is an undercurrent of what you're talking about. I think I'm, I'm picking up and agree with that, you know, you, you've got to do, you got to say the things that sometimes organizations will maybe not want to hear but need to hear and will respect you for it if you do it mm -hmm. respectfully and you know uh, in a in a in an appropriate way that will increase your value you know they'll say hey I yes. like that Chris you know sometimes he's you know he, he's he, he's not always telling me what I want but I value his opinion that is the the goal I, I think I, I I agree with that. To me, if you can't be honest with that viewpoint, and and uh, again, I had situations. And I want to say early on, but that's not always true. I could probably point at things that happened in the last couple of years where I made some very bold statements um, because that was my belief at the time. And and you know, certainly for one of them, maybe I I hadn't done enough due diligence on that particular topic. So you know. I, I, I led someone down the wrong path a little bit. Um, but you know what? We're, we're always going to do that. And what you shouldn't be afraid of, or, you, or I feel that you should never feel you have to tow a party line, right? If you have a strong belief about how things should be, and you, you've got a good set of information, and, and you have a boss or a manager, right, or a leader who is a good listener, and, and I think everyone's had one who hasn't been, and that's where the trouble really starts to begin for most people. If you've got someone who's a good listener, they will be respectful and they will want to hear why you don't agree, right? Because the worst thing for them is, is everyone sitting around the table silent when they, when they ask the question, so do you all agree? And there's a silence. And then six months later, epically failed because someone knew around that table what the real situation was going to be. And they didn't feel that they had a voice. Now, not everyone's going to have a voice. And early on in your career, you won't. 
you won't have that type of voice. But I go back to something I said, I think, earlier on in, in, in our discussion, in our chat, which was, you know, as a project manager, I always felt my job was to do myself out of a job, which was to get the job done, complete it, and move on. Irrespective of whether it's as a consultant or a contractor versus a full-time project manager, I think in a full-time situation, I've seen some individuals do amazing in terms of growth, both personal and level growth. Um, individuals who started 25 years ago as junior PMs and now they're, right. you know, vice presidents within within those organisations, and they they are fundamentally amazing at what they do. Um, but that takes time, and it, it, again, I'm not going to counsel people in their careers and what they should do. I think project managers should understand you have lots of options, right? And it depends on ultimately what you want in general. If if you enjoy your weekends and that's that's the time you love then figure out how to have a role that gives you that because you know you're not always going to get that on these projects i think mean, you know we've been on those where how many how many weekends in a row did we never have right did we lose because of the deadlines we had to have and i know on projects i've worked on like that um i look back and go could have i could i have stopped that could have i actually told people you know what it wasn't one year, it was 18 months. It, was, it wasn't 18 months, it was two years. And if we planned that earlier on, then some of us may have had a life you know, in between. Um, but you, you grow into that. And I think project managers should know if this is the infancy of their career. You will have the ability to have great influence, either directly, certainly indirect influence. But you, over time as you grow, whether as a consultant or an internal person growing their career that way in a good organization. Your ability to gain more and more direct influence on these projects, these programs, increases dramatically. And it, 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 it should empower you. You should feel that that gives you something that helps the people doing the work, the real workers. Not to say a project manager doesn't do work, but I, that's maybe for another, for another chat another day. But, you know, I think that personally that you as a PM, the goal is to do yourself out of job. You should never be scared of doing doing yourself out of job. And if you're worried about doing yourself out of job, it's basically in my mind, it's for two reasons. One is you're in an organization that creates that fear, in which case challenge yourself as to why you're working with that organization. Exactly. Yeah. Because you're not you're not going to change the organization, but you can change jobs. And the second thing. You may have a fear because you have deep, deep down inside you a, a gnawing pain that is telling you that you're lacking something in your knowledge or your toolkit, right? And we all have this, right? You know, when we do those, uh, what, they, what do they call them, um, HR surveys or whatever, personality tests, right? And they, they pick out your strengths and your weaknesses and yada, yada, yada. And, and it's like, okay, be, you know, ultimately you want to be who you are. But recognize if you do get that feeling of a pit in the stomach and it's not because the organization is, is causing this, then sometimes the pit in the stomach is because you know deep down you can improve. And that's good. Right? Self-realization is amazing. And this is why I also say, do yourself a favor, get mentors. Get people who will be, give you good mentorship because they'll validate that. They also may say, hey, you've got a million great traits already. Yeah, don't worry about that one. 
that's not going to matter at the end of the day because everything else you bring to the table is fine. Um, but I think that's the, the piece to me is, you're right, people have fears, but as PMs you want to grow. And I encourage anyone to grow. If the organization doesn't let you grow, build a skill base because your skills as a PM is very valuable. It's very much needed in many organizations in this world. And you can you can move, right? You can move. No, so, I and I, and I agree. I, I agree completely of, of that fear. If you're if you're if you're if you're coming from a place of fear, oh, I can't be myself because I they might not like that. Now again, I'll, I'll de put a caveat. You know, we've we've said this doesn't give you license to go around insulting people. We're not talking about that, <laughs> but we're talking about if you can't be honest, if you can't provide you know if you you do if if your organization wants yes people then maybe it's not an organization to work for maybe it's somewhere where you get a little experience and you move on to somewhere else that values um opinions and honesty and so on um and you don't want to see i mean i again i'm calling this is a nuanced point you know it could be misunderstood you don't want to be seen as an agitator you know as a as a oh everything's a problem and no i hate that you don't want that but you want the person who will be honest, um, you know. And like you said, you might you might make the odd mistake. You might have to walk something back, where you, you come out in one one direction. Once you find out more, the ability to say, you know, um, you know, well, oh, I was wrong. You know, I, I I'm I'm amending my my position on that. People again, if you if you say it honestly, people will respect that. I, I liked what you said, just commenting on when you said, um, you know, do project managers do real work and so on. And we all kind of, it, it's sort of an, almost an inside joke of one of the things that I kind of like, I, I, I did before project and program management before the, you know, before when, when you and I worked together directly, Chris, and, and now I'm an, an educator. And it's, it's funny because now I can, if I say to someone, oh, I'm a professor at a college, they, oh, I know what that is. But for me to describe, okay, I'm a project man, I'm a program manager at, uh, you know, at this, at this institution and, and they, okay, well, what do you do? Well, I'm in a lot of meetings and I talk to a lot of people, but what do you do? <laughs> well, you know, I help make decisions and I influence people. What is that? Like it's 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 part of it is is hard to define. It's an it's it's very a, a paradox of extremely valuable. I mean, you can say things like I get things done. Well, what? But how do you get? Like, do you actually write the computer programs? Nope. Do you actually implement them? Nope. <laughs> then what what do you do? <laughs> so I'm I'm happy in some ways to be in a very definable career right now because I don't have to explain to people what it is. Yeah, it's it it is interesting to me. I think the the uh, it's more traits that I look for. So you know the anti PM PM thing, right? I I I spend less time certainly nowadays, as I mentioned, on the the purest you know Gantt charts and you know all the the tooling there. And I and I try think more broadly about okay, what are we doing and how are we doing it and are we doing it fast enough, right? And it comes down to some very basic principles. First is is sense of urgency. Uh, for me, what I've learned to recognize is where there's not a sense of urgency. And 
you need to sometimes understand why. There's often good reasons why there may not be, in a particular group at a particular time, a feeling of a sense of urgency. But it's, it's almost like a, a very difficult KPI to um, uh, key performance indicator to actually monitor in a quantitative way. It's more of a feeling where you want to keep, you know, you get a sense that someone, for whatever reason, is dragging their heels, right? Or unable to keep up with the rest of the, the group. And that to me is, is, is very much, again, something that project managers should learn how to control and how to understand if they're not seeing that sense of urgency, how do you instill it? What do you need to do? And sometimes it's a very quick coffee conversation. Other times it's, you know what, we've been running at this for four months, everyone's burnt out, we need a party or we need a, you know, a pep talk from the executives or we need the CEO to come to the floor and just do a walk around to make sure that you right. know, we all feel that he knows we're still, or she knows we're still there, right? And I'm just, you know, those are the things that a PM, again, there's no handbook that tells you to do these things, but no. these are the things you should be thinking about. If you see people getting burnt out and you know it's a Thursday afternoon, well, I, there's been times I've said to my executive, you know what, I'm sending everyone home. Everyone's taking tomorrow off. And they're like, you can't do that. I'm like, well, we have to because what's going to happen in the next three weeks is going to be worse if we just don't give everyone a long weekend. And inevitably, what happens is you do that for people, they have a lovely long weekend, and they work twice as hard the next number of weeks afterwards. Right. You actually get more out of them. But a PM has to learn to see the, the telltale signs of this. Like, what does burnout look like? What does a lack of um, 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 acceleration look like? And you know, the, to me, these are, these are really critical as, as part of the sort of anti-PM toolbox. The other thing that I also get really, you know, generally concerned about is, does everyone still remember what we're doing, right? And on larger programs, we forget very quickly. Um, if you don't set, you know, a sort of banner, it's like a mantra that everyone should chant first thing in the morning, right? This is the job we're trying to do, and this is the delivery we're trying to get done. If you don't do that, and most people won't, and I don't, by the way, but if you, you need to keep people reminded, else what you end up doing a lot of the time is what they classically call herding the cats, right? Because someone runs off in a bizarre direction, and you're kind of wrapping your arms around all these little kittens, and again, that may sound very patronizing, but it's a good anecdote for what really happens in these organizations, is you can suddenly find one group just shoot off in a different way, unexpectedly, unannounced, and if you don't have your hand on the pulse, suddenly you've lost weeks of work, potentially. Um, maybe for good reason, but, you know, herding cats, big thing a PM has to do, right? Keep the cadence going, big thing. Look for burnout, big thing. These are all things that I don't know, I've seen enough on in books in general. There's a lot of anecdotal pieces, but to me, they're very, it's actually very easy to do, but as a PM, you have to remind yourself to keep doing it. Yeah. Right. Check in. Check in with everyone. Yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. There really isn't. A, there. There's no handbook for this. The. the you know. You're, you're almost say it's. It's like a. The. The anti PM is. You know. Some part. Some part traditional project manager. Some part. Mm -hmm. You know. Motivational. Uh, life coach. Some part. You know. Kind of. Um, 
you know, HR specialist, some part uh, psychologist or <laughs> psychotherapist, you know, so you have yeah. all of these pieces that are all there that really, um, you know, uh, it's, it, you're not necessarily shown how to do this other than through, men you mentioned mentorship before, um, mm -hmm. and, and just, I think understanding that that's part of your job. Like, I think if you understand that's part of your job, you can then start to seek it out and say, oh, I, you know, I should start thinking about this. Or I've even found, you know, not everybody's the greatest, you know, you're saying, hey, we need to, we need to have some social things for, for our, our, our project or program. We really need to have something. Well, you might not be the best event planner in the world, but maybe somebody on your team is where you go and you know, say, hey, Joe, you know, I know you, can you help me out here? And then, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to do. You know, you can bring people in, but you still have to recognize the need. That's first step, and then, then you can yeah. make it happen. Yeah, and I think you know within within those sort of um, sort of processes as you're as you're monitoring. For for me, I I look at these things and I go, at the end of it, you know, there are very few industries. There are a couple. But very few industries where running projects is life and death. Very few. So if you put those ones aside, most projects, most project managers will be doing are not life and death. There's no one going to, you know, die because you missed that deadline. And yet sometimes I feel executives put too much pressure as if that was the case. Right, and what you, what I always think of is that part of the role of a PM is to try and create some level of levity all the way through. Like you want you want to try and instill humor. Uh, you want to not point at someone and say you know like a silly comedian, but you want to you want to make sure people recognize that you're on a journey, that you're going to have ups and downs, and that at the end of it all, no one is as I said, it's not a life and death situation. For the most part. By the way, if you are a PM in a life and death right. industry, different. okay, yeah. different. But for the most part. But I think you you know recognize that your job as a PM is to 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 keep everyone smiling. It's it's interesting. I, I um, last year moved to the Middle East, and in the Middle East they have um, in all the government offices they have um, a what they call a happiness representative. And it's something that across all the government buildings and across all the government groups, it's a standard practice. It's almost like a pro, it's like a PMO office, but it's not. It's just only about happiness. And they call things as it is, is that first off, if you are happy with the service, then you say you're happy. And if you're sad about a particular service you're getting, it's immediately a complaint. And I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, well, I'm not really complaining. I'm just giving some feedback. And they're like, no, 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 we list it as a complaint. And I'm like, oh, that's, that feels a bit harsh. Like, am I now really wanting to complain? And they, I remember having a conversation with someone. They go, no, no, this is the way we've always done this because we take it very seriously. We, you know, if you are not happy, it means something's making you unhappy and therefore it's a complaint and therefore we need to enact on your complaint. And I was thinking about it and going, you know what? That is so clear and crystal, and yet how many other countries around the world would struggle with being able to create that type of very direct and defined language, and how many organizations struggle within that country with that? I mean, if you had that conversation with, I'm not going to 
necessarily say I could think of which one it would be, but I'm sure one of the you know, major financial institutes on Bay Street's HR teams would be horrified if you used such directing language. And I think this is, you know, comes back to the ability to say no or I don't know or be able to tell your boss, no, you're, you know, it's this way, not the way you're thinking. Um, and just to that point, I've had some, some really interesting um, bosses and managers over my time. And I, I, I have done exactly that where if I thought the direction was incorrect, I would say so. Uh, we would have a conversation and, you know, that would be where I would stop because they had my feedback and sometimes they would take it and other times they wouldn't. But if they didn't, I wouldn't take it personally because I also knew that they had a much bigger view of the world and broader view. And even though I, what I thought was correct, they probably knew it wasn't. And yeah. I think you've got to also be very respectful of that. So for me, you know, that attentive to detail, being very exacting is, 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 is critical. And, and happiness, though, which is where I was trying to go with my little, little monologue here, is the critical thing is the PM's job is to make sure their team is happy, right? And if some, something or someone or some group is unhappy, you've got to get in there. You've got to figure it out. You've got to make it better because if you don't, it'll, it'll cause everything to slow down, everything to stop. You, you know, that to me, keep everyone happy. That's a long way to making things very successful. And again, right. I don't see that often written in books. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think it is. And, and it's interesting. I have not expressed it or thought of it in those terms the way I've thought of it, but it's, it's, in, it's congruent with what you're saying is I thought the PM's role is to create a positive environment for the team, which is happy, like, which is another way of saying is make happy. It needs to be yeah. an environment that they can work in. It's positive. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not this adversarial relationship or a, a place where they only find out the absolute minimum information. This compartmentalization is that there is a, a mm -hmm. you know, a flow of information that is a, a fun environment. Like there's, you, you can be working on a project. You can, you can, you can have a little levity in meetings and still be very productive. Those are not mutually exclusive things, you know, and, and that's yeah. part of the roles of that, you know, and it seems like, well, geez, really, that's part of the role of the PM. Yeah, it is. So you're, you're, you're setting the tone for your project. You know, you model yeah. it, encourage it, promote it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and all of the, 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 watch the, watch the effectiveness of your team rise when you, when you do that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's hugely important for sure. Yeah. So, um, Anyways, Chris, this has been a great talk. I've, this has been uh, covered a, a, a lot of ground, and I, I really like your your anti PM PM. Is there, is there a book coming out of this title or or? Yeah, it's, it'll come. It'll come out after the uh, the procrastinators PM book. Oh right, right. You know, which will take will take a lot longer to. So that's the first one I'm still working on. Right. Um, once I've completed the procrastinators project management book, then uh, then the anti-PM will come out. But well, don't hold your breath for the procrastinators want to come out anytime soon. Right, right. So so, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll wait on the first one and then the second one. But anyways, it's been great talking to you after all this time. And uh, um, yeah, thanks, you know, Dave. Good luck to you in future for sure.